And, and then consider the words of the song of speaking about uh, the Lord who has taken us and taken from us the curse of the law, which is exactly where we have been in the book of Galatians earlier in chapter 3. I encourage you today to open the Bible to the book of Galatians chapter 3. We are continuing our journey through this amazing book, uh, the book of Galatians, uh, which is a book that challenges us to recover the gospel of justification by faith. This morning, would you open God's word to Galatians chapter 3. I'll be reading from verse 15 to verse 22. Galatians chapter 3. Verses 15 to 22. If you're new to our congregation, if you're visiting with us, we're working our way through the book of Galatians. And uh, if you want to listen more about uh, this book, whether before or after, and you're not with us the remaining Sundays, uh, you're welcome to listen online as well. But listen to God's word this morning, the word for our hearts. To give a human example, brothers, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of the transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Amen. This is God's word for our hearts. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the proclamation of the word and our hearts as we hear. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have given us your word. And this morning we ask for the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit to assist in the proclamation of this word and to assist in the hearing of it. We're gathered here in the name of Jesus Christ. So would you work through your spirit with the authority of Christ, we pray. Amen. Would you have an agreement and a business deal made by having things written down and having a contract that both parties sign? Or would you just exchange a few words and go by promise? 
let's think about the way we are naturally inclined to do work, to engage in our day-to-day -day activities. Would you rather have the, the guarantee of a contract where everything is stipulated and everything is made certain and there's no gaps that people can get out and, and make an abuse? Or, or would you just take someone's word for it? Nothing written, just a word of promise. We, we are so used in our day today, in our society, uh, to go by that which is guaranteed, written down, contractual, law-binding. And we bring those instincts into our spiritual lives as well. And so easily we bring those instincts in the way we also relate to God, thinking that our relationship to God is, is like a contract. God, you promise to do this. I promise to do this. I'll do my part. You'll do your part. We meet halfway. Lord, why aren't you doing what you promised? I did my part. And disappointment oftentimes hits us when we come to the Lord in this contractual way. And when we understand the gospel, one of the first things we must understand about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is that God wants to strip away that contractual, let's meet halfway kind of approach to our relationship with God. I do my part, you do your part. We'll be happy partners in this. The passage we have before us is part of a larger argument in the book of Galatians. Uh, the book that seeks to recover the gospel of justification by faith in Christ. Uh, Paul argued earlier in this chapter that the way to be declared right in the sight of God is not by taking the path of, of works, but by taking the path of faith, of trusting, relying on God's word, not our works. And that is how God justifies. That is how God declares us righteous in his sight. And in our text today, Paul offers a new angle to his argument. The argument continues in our text. He just offers a new argument, a new angle to his overarching point in the whole book. This time, the setting changes from justification to inheritance. Instead of talking about justification, Paul for a moment goes on a detour on a lane called inheritance so that he will build the case that everything God does with us ought to be based on trust, not on reliance on our works. You see, the relationship that God wants to have with us is not only a legal relationship of right standing with God, but a familial relationship in which God is granting an inheritance to those he redeems. And the question is, how do we get this inheritance? How do we become heirs of this inheritance? And the text that we have just read gives us a simple but powerful answer. And the answer is 
perhaps this would be the, the way to summarize the whole message. God's inheritance is granted not by law, but by promise. God's inheritance is granted not by law, but by promise. And understanding this simple truth affects how we relate to God appropriately. Paul has to correct how people, uh, particularly in the context he wrote to in the book of Galatians, the Galatian Christians, how they related to the law. They, 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 they distorted its use. Some overestimated the role of God's law. Others underestimated the role of God's law. And in this text, Paul addressed both extremes so that realigning their understanding of the law of God would help them relate appropriately to God by trusting in his promises for his inheritance. The law and the promise. My prayer today is as we listen to this message that the Lord would help us realign our view of God's law so that we may respond appropriately to God's promise and thus become recipients of God's inheritance. Uh, there's two major points that this passage brings to us. And they're the two uh, wrong ways the Galatians were tempted to go and the correction Paul brings in each case. Point number one, the first correction, don't overestimate what God's law was designed to do. Don't overestimate what God's law was designed to do. We see this in verses 15 through 18 in the passage we have read. And Paul here in the overestimating, he brings some important corrections that God and his law, and particularly God's law, does not cancel God's promise. That's a, that's a, that's a, the way in which the Galatian Christians were tempted to overestimate God's law, thinking that somehow, because the law more, was more recent than the promise, that somehow the law is really more important than the promise. In verse 17, we see the, the center of Paul's argument. Paul says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. God made promises to Abraham and to his offspring, and those promises stand and cannot be altered. And Paul gave an example, an illustration. We see that in verse 15, where Paul said, just like a human testament or a human covenant cannot be changed. Now the covenant that is in view here is not just any contract. Uh, the covenant that is in view is, is the will or the testament that someone puts together, sets up in order to pass on an inheritance to someone's offspring. That testament, that will, once it is, once it is ratified, cannot be changed. That happens with human situations. And Paul's argument is just like in a human testament that has been ratified, just like that cannot be changed, so also, and how much more, when God makes a testament to give an inheritance, that promise, that testament cannot change. But, but who is the inheritance? 
promised to? Who is God giving this testament? Uh, We learn in the passage that it is given to Abraham and to his offspring. But Paul has to give us an important qualification. The offspring that is envisioned in the giving of this inheritance is not simply Abraham's physical children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That actually God intended a very specific offspring. So that's what we get in verse 16. Paul clarifies, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. And then there is a definition. Who is that one's offspring? Paul says, who is Christ? This tells us that the testament, the the inheritance that God prepared to give to Abraham and he announced to him had in view not merely Abraham and his immediate Isaac and Jacob and so forth, that the inheritance had a long-term projection as well. And that inheritance actually was looking forward to the coming of Christ himself. When Matthew starts his account of the genealogy of Jesus, and introduces Jesus to us. The very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew, which becomes the very first verse of the New Testament, introduces Jesus in the following way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why? Why does it go to Abraham? Because the inheritance God began revealing to Abraham had the next pillar of the bridge looking forward to Christ. Abraham was the first pillar of the bridge. But the weight of the promise of the inheritance was looking forward to the other side of the bridge and the pillar who was supposed to receive the inheritance that God began revealing to Abraham was actually Jesus Christ. You say, what's the inheritance? What's the promise God made? Well, we've seen earlier in the book of Galatians in in the first part of chapter 3 that God promised Abraham justification by faith and the promise of the Spirit, the, the inheritance of salvation. God began promising that to Abraham and the, and the second pillar of that bridge, that promise, would be Jesus Christ. And the law of the Old Testament does not change what God began doing with Abraham and ultimately planned to accomplish in Jesus. Why did Paul have to make this clarification? Well, because there are people in Galatia who were emphasizing the role of the law as necessary for one's standing with God. If you want to have the right standing with God, you must not only believe in God, not only believe in Jesus, but you must also do all these works of the law in order to be the recipient of what God promised. Now in doing so, those who are making these arguments were betraying an important part. They missed to understand clearly God's promises 
to Abraham. So what we have here is a little detour on the, on the street called inheritance. And Paul's saying to the Galatians, let's go back to understand God's promised inheritance to Abraham. How he went about giving it. What he meant by it. And when we get that, hopefully it'll help us understand how we relate to God. Not by works, but by trusting. Not by the law, but by receiving the promise. By insisting on obeying the law as a, con as a condition for salvation, these Galatians were in essence making God's promise void. Have you ever written a check? And you had the money for it in the bank. And after giving the check, somebody comes in, intercepts a check, somebody else against your will, and just writes void on it. When that happens, that check is no longer good. The promises of making sure that the wire transfer, the transfer between banks happens, is now canceled. You had all the good intentions to, to pay, to make payment for what you had intended to do. But someone else, against your will, would come and void that check. Paul is saying to the Galatians, when you put the law as a condition for receiving the inheritance of God, you are making the promise of God void. And you can't do that. Paul says in verse 18, if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. God grants his inheritance to Abraham and beyond Abraham, to Christ. And through Christ, to the world. God said to Abraham that through you and your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. If the law interferes in that promise, there is no more promise. The promise will no, be long, no longer be acted on. And Paul says you can't do that if you're going to hold on to the promise of God that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham and his offspring. We must hold to the initial conditions that God set that for. And the condition was simply by promise, not by law. Oh, friends, if you find yourself trusting more on your obedience, on your good status, on your good works, on your, I haven't done all that bad kind of thinking, in order to bring you to be acceptable in the sight of God, to make you right with God, if you are acting in those kind of self-centered, human accomplishment, human trust ways, you are acting as if the inheritance of God is granted by the law and as if the promise he has made is now voided in your case. Oh, friends, in doing so, we are undermining God's promises. We are God making God's promises void. And that is an affront to God. In the financial terms, uh, that's 
creating a financial mess. You are making his promises count for nothing. Instead of counting our, on our performance to give us the right standing with God and receiving his inheritance, we must count and trust on God's promise to give us what he promised to do apart from our works and solely by trusting in Jesus to whom the promises were made. The blessing that God promised Abraham and Christ is that through, all, through them, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God promised to accomplish that through Jesus. Not through us, but through Jesus. And by offering the forgiveness of sins, by offering the justification, by faith in Christ alone, and by, br by bringing the Spirit, God grants his inheritance to Abraham and his offspring, and through his offspring to the ends of the earth. So don't overestimate what God's law was designed to do. God's law does not cancel God's promise. God's law was never intended as a condition for God's inheritance. Point number two, don't underestimate what God's law was designed to do. Don't underestimate what God's this law was designed to do. We see this in verses 19 through 22. If some heard the news and the correction that we can overestimate the law and put too much trust and reliance on the law and our obedience to the law, there's another ditch on the other side. Those who'd say, all right, let's just throw the law away. Let's just throw that contract away. And Paul says, no, 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 don't do that either. There are some ways to underestimate what the law was intended and designed by God to do. So what was the law intended by God to do? We'll see three corrections. The purpose of the law is to reveal our sin. We see this in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Do you hear the, the beautiful longing on one side that the law has? It's looking forward to the one who is coming to whom the promise was made. That was not Isaac. That was not Jacob. That was not the immediate gen, gen, uh, generations coming out of Abraham. Who is the one that the law is waiting for and looking forward to? Let's, let's hold on to that question for a second. Notice why, until he comes, why was the law given? It was given and added because of transgressions. The law was added in order to make us realize our condition. Now, was the law aimed to make us stop sinning? It tried. If that was the intent of the law, to make us stop sinning, the law failed. The law wasn't given to make us stop sinning. When it says it was given because of transgression, it wasn't to put an end to the transgression. A better answer is the law was given 
to reveal the nature of our hearts that was bent on breaking God's law. The law didn't cause us to be sinners. The law revealed that we are sinners. The law just became the evidence externally of what had become a reality for us internally. That's why the law was added, because of transgression. I love how one Bible teacher says this. Satan would have us to prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave to prove us sinners. Let me read that again. It's so good. Satan would have us to prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave to prove us sinners. And this is the, the temptation. This is the tendency we all have when we misuse the law. We try to use the law of God to make us think that we can do it. We're holy. We're righteous. God gave us a law to prove to us, you're not. I'd like you to be, but you're not. And you can't. This is the purpose of the law, to prove that we have become transgressors. And the appearing of the offspring of Abraham, the one to whom the law is looking forward to, is that he would be the one who would put an end to transgression. Not the law. The law cannot put an end to transgression. All the law can do is to reveal the transgression. But the law was set in place until he would come to whom the promise would be given. The one who truly had the power to bring the, the, the transgression to an end, to put an end to it. The purpose of the law was not to be the means of salvation, but to reveal our need of salvation. As the great reformer John Calvin said, he means that the law was published in order to make known transgressions and in this way to compel men to acknowledge their guilt. Through the law, it's as if God, quote, summons consciences to his courtroom. Through the law, God summons consciences to his courtroom in order to awaken us to deal with our guilt before it's too late. Well, friends, when you read the Old Testament and the laws of God that he gave there, do you tend to dismiss them quickly as an antiquated, irrelevant piece of information for Christians? While this is the way sometimes we're tempted to read the Old Testament law, consider it instead as an opportunity to reveal our sin and our need for the one to whom the law was looking forward to come. Consider the law of God even in the Old Testament as an opportunity for the conscience to be awakened in fresh ways and to realize and to recognize there's no way I can keep this law. But the law itself was given to point to the one who would come to whom the promise had been given. Another positive use of the law. Another way not to underestimate God's law is that the purpose of the law is to show the uniqueness of God's promise. The purpose of the law is to show the uniqueness of God's promise. 
Look at verses 19 and 20. It was placed, or it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, I have to confess to you, this is one of the most puzzling verses in the whole book of Galatians. And even as I worked this week through this passage, I found myself, what is this supposed to mean? And how do, how do these words function in the argument that Paul is bringing here? I found a, some important help from a Dutch theologian by the name of Ritterboss. And he helped me see here that these words are describing to us the way the law and the promise were given. And the way the law and the promise were given communicates a point. It's obscure at first. It's, it's not very intuitive right away. But Paul finds an important lesson from the way in which the law and the promise were revealed. In the case of the law, it was revealed through angels and then through a mediator. And that's referring to Moses. Now, the fact, and this is what Paul fleshes out, the fact that a mediator was involved in the giving of the law implied that two parties were needed to bring this agreement together. Both parties had to comply, if you will, had to, to do their part in order for this mediation, in order for this law to work. The lawgiver on one side and the people to whom the law was given. The law would not work if both parties don't engage accordingly. As Ritterboss said beautifully, and I need to quote him because it captures the essence, I think, of what this picture gives, to achieve its purpose, the law is dependent upon human appropriation and agreement. God is the author, but man is a subject of its fulfillment. In the giving of the promise, however, no mediator intervened. God was at work alone, for he is not only the author of the promise, he also fulfills it. And that's why the giving of the law, in the giving of the law, it's important to, for Paul to say, there was no need for a mediator. God was alone. No one else was needed. God brought that promise to Abraham directly. And there was no need for a mediator who would mediate this contract. Because in the case of the promise, in order for the promise to work, only one party needed to work. Only one party needed to do its part. So, in this way of showing how the law and the promise were given, we see the unconditional character of the promise and its superiority to the law. Friends, this is why in thinking through the contract or the promise. You need a contract that's written down with conditions and laws set in place when there is some degree of what if one of the parties doesn't do what it says it will do. 
But when you go by promise, it's like you are putting all your eggs in the basket of the one who's making the promise. And that's exactly the point. That's what, what makes a huge difference between the law and the promise. In the promise, in taking it by promise, we are saying, God, we believe that you and you alone is all that is needed for this inheritance to work. Your promise is sufficient. I don't need the law. And actually, God says, I don't need you to think that you need the law. Just trust me that I will do it. Put everything that you have in terms of trust in me and my word that I will carry it out entirely. Oh, friends, this is the point of this imagery that seems so obscure. What do you do with, with a mediator and with the fact that God is one? It's the way that God gave the law and the promise that makes a difference and shows the uniqueness of the promise in contrast with the law. So the purpose of the law is to show the uniqueness of God's promise in the very way the law was given. Oh, friends, if you are a believer, you can live the Christian life resting on this promise that our inheritance with God is based not on our performance of God's law, but simply on holding to his promise to grant the inheritance through Jesus Christ. We don't have to work for our inheritance. We receive it by faith in Christ because God promised to give that inheritance to Abraham first, then to Jesus. And when we hold on to Jesus, we become the recipients of the same promises God has made. I love how 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 brings these pictures together. 1 Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Inflation will not affect it. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. This is what God wants to give us. And the use of the law in its temporalness points to the fact that it is not the answer to our sin problem. It's pointing forward to the one who is the answer. And in the way it was given, it shows that it's not a two-way street here. Let's meet in the middle of this contract. It's more like trust entirely that God will do what he promised to do through this promise. And then the final way which the, the law works positively, and another way in which we should use the law and not undermine its design the law, the purpose of the law is to reveal our inability. The purpose of the law is to reveal our inability. After hearing the contrast between the law and the promise, Paul wants to make sure we don't walk away thinking that the law of God is against the promise of God. If the law is not the answer, ultimately, we should not say, like we often do, if, if it doesn't help me for the ultimate aim, now let's just discard it. No, Paul says, don't do that. Instead, notice what it's supposed to do. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? 
Certainly not. The law and the promise of God were never designed to be in competition for our attention. The law was given to show not only our sinfulness, but the law was also given to show our inability to come back to life through the law. Look at verses 21 and 22. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Does it surprise you to see that in breaking God's law, we need not merely to be made right with God, but also we need to be brought back to life? Did you see that? In breaking God's law, what is needed is not merely to be made right with God, but also to be brought to life. When you break a human law, there's very degrees of punishment. But usually, with one exception, death is not one of them. But in the case of the breaking the law of God, all it takes is to break one law. And it doesn't matter which one. for us to lose the right to life itself. First, spiritually, with God. Eventually, physically, as well. When you break God's law, when we break God's law, what we are in need of is not simply a legal right standing with God. We actually need to be granted back the life we have lost through the breaking of even just one law. Friends, in breaking God's law, we have lost life with God. We have lost the right to life unending with the eternal God. So the law, it's given to us to show us that we cannot resolve our problem by simply obeying the law. Because there is no law ever given who could give us life. None of it. And this is a useful purpose of the law, to lift the cover of our self-assumed goodness or our self-assumed ability to show our true condition under sin. We are dead. We need new life. Our sin requires not only that we be absolved of guilt, but that we be brought to life. And the inability of the law continues in verse 22. Paul gives a picture of imprisonment. Verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. What does it mean when it says the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin? If the scripture imprisons everything under sin... It's not the Bible's fault. It's our fault. The Bible, Scripture, simply reveals our imprisonment. It does not cause it. If you have a terminal disease, would you like to find out about it early or late? Would you like to find out about it when there's still something to be done about it? 
or when the cancer is in the last stage, it's too late to do anything with it. Now, when you, when you go and do the test, you know this, the test doesn't cause your disease. The test simply reveals your disease. And in the same way, the Bible holds everything imprisoned under sin. It doesn't cause the imprisonment. It simply reveals the imprisonment. Just like we don't blame the doctor who gives the diagnosis, we should not blame God or the scriptures for imprisoning everything under sin. Well, friends, scripture reveals that sin not only pollutes, but kills. Scripture reveals that sin not only corrupts, but takes away our life. And I bet no one here around us waked up this morning thinking, oh, I'm imprisoned. None of us think that way. None of us came to church thinking, I come to church this morning as an imprisoned man. I'm free after all. I can drive my own car. I can eat. I can do stuff. I'm not in prison. And yet the Bible says, unless our sin is dealt with, we are imprisoned in sin. Every one of us, the whole earth, the whole creation is in bondage to the very rebellion that we have triggered and caused. Now, friends, we need Scripture to remind us that sin holds us captive in the clutches of death. And a good picture that describes the effect of sin on us is simply this, imprisonment. Oh, but the good news of the gospel is that the law, while it points to our inability, it also points forward to the one who can do something about that which we are unable to do, and that is Jesus Christ. This is the goodness of the law. While it reveals our inability to come back to life, to the life that we desperately need, to the freedom uh, from the bondage of sin, while the law points to our inability to do that, it also points and makes room for the faith in Jesus Christ through whom our imprisonment is broken and through whom God gives life to us, to our souls, through his spirit, through the preaching of the gospel and through the mere act of hearing with faith. That is all it takes for this to become ours, to hear this news. And like Abraham of old, to take God's word and believe that he will accomplish it. And it's a one-way street. It's not a two-way street. This is, a, this is a, the way in which we should not underestimate the use of the law. When you go to a jewelry store and uh, might see various displays of jewels, uh, oftentimes they put it against a dark cloth. Why? in order that the beauty and the radiance of the diamond or the, of the jewel could really come through because it's against the, the dark background that the beauty of that piece shines. And the law in this passage functions in this way. It actually helps us to see the darkness of our hearts, the inabilities of our self-assessed abilities, the, the shortness of what we can do in order to tell us 
Don't trust the law. Don't trust your ability to keep the law, to make yourself right with God on your terms. Look to the one that God promised he would send. Look to the one to whom God promised the inheritance. God promised to him that he will give the nations to him. Read Psalm 2 when you get home. God promised Jesus to give him the nations as the inheritance so that through believing in him, we who are part of the nations might receive the same promises that God has given to his son Jesus. Oh, friends, this is a point to which this whole argument, this whole detour on the street called inheritance brings us to by looking at the way promised his, God promised his inheritance to Abraham that we might be solidified in responding to God not by trusting in our own ability but trusting in God. Well, friends, as uh, Calvin put it beautifully, this sentence that God gives us in verse 22, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, this promise is full of the highest consolation. It tells us that wherever we hear ourselves condemned in Scripture, there is help provided for us in Christ. If we betake ourselves to Him by faith. So, don't despise God's law because we are to call, just because we are called to hold on to his promise. Don't consider the law to be contrary to God's promises. Don't assume that we no longer have any use for the law now that we embrace the promise of God. When we read the law of God, we are reminded of our sinfulness. And if you are a believer who have turned away from your sin to Christ. Let the, the use of the law remind you of what Christ has saved you from. Let it, let it drive in you a, a new and fresh and deeper appreciation and thankfulness to God that all that the law has condemned, Christ has saved us from. If you're not yet a believer, consider listening to the law of God. Consider listening to, to the guilt that we are under unless our sin is dealt with. And let that guilt drive you to the need to realize that you need someone other than yourself to get it right. Both the law and the promise have a role to play for receiving God's inheritance, but the roles are vastly different. And if we miss those roles and the differences between the roles, we are in deep trouble. The law was never intended to replace our need for Jesus. The law was intended to point to our need for him by trusting, not by trying. I pray that we would live lives that focus on trusting in what God said, not simply trying to make him pleased and thinking that our obedience is what grants us the access to his inheritance. So calibrate your understanding of God's law. Don't overestimate it. Don't underestimate it. Let it lead you to the need for Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we praise you that you are so faithful and so trustworthy and so marvelous in your promises for inheritance that you have made it so clear to us in your word 
that all that you require of us to be heirs of your inheritance is to take you by your word, that you are able to give your inheritance to your son, Jesus Christ, and through him to give us the same promises. We pray that we would respond by faith and trust in you, not only as a one-time response, but as, a, as an ongoing life of continued trust in your son, Jesus, so that we would be a kind of people that put our confidence not in ourselves, not in our abilities, but in you. Would you cause faith to increase to our hearts? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.